All of us know how important it is to fuel your body with good-for-you ingredients. Well, Bigelow Tea has great news for both avid tea drinkers as well as those who turn to tea when feeling under the weather. Introducing Bigelow Benefits Teas, a line of tea designed to support clean eating and a healthy everyday lifestyle. So whether you want to stay well, sleep better, calm your stomach, or feel refreshed, Bigelow Benefits not only supports your well-being, but also tastes great. Be sure to try our latest benefits teas, Lean and Fit, Focus and Stress Relief. Learn more at BigelowTea.com. Hey, everybody. I am here with Dr. David Katz. I'm going to do a quick intro, read you his bio, and I'm very excited to talk to him because I've known David for a very long time. So David is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center and founder president of the True Health Initiative. He's a globally recognized expert on nutrition, weight management, and the prevention of chronic disease, and has written for major media outlets, including the Huffington Post and Forbes and many other, and LinkedIn. And if you don't follow him on LinkedIn, then you need to follow him on LinkedIn because, David, you've been so vocal about what's going on, and I'm so happy to have you on our show, so welcome. So good to be with you, Andrew. It's been a long time since we've seen one another. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. In, in this mangy state. Well, you worked out, so you were actually doing uh, <laughs> the thing we should all be doing every single day, exercising. Right. So for those of you who don't know, David is actually the reason Naturally Savvy exists because we met in 2007 and we developed this amazing, to me, David, you're a mentor for Naturally Savvy. So thank you for everything no, thank you've helped you. us create over the past gosh, 12 years. So this is very exciting to have you on the show. Okay. So first and foremost, I want to know how are you doing and how's your family doing amidst the whole COVID-19 thing? Yeah, we're in the midst of crazy mayhem. So I'm, I'm quite confident that I had or have most likely had coronavirus. I, I was tested after about 10 days of symptoms uh, when I could finally get tested. And seven days later, my test result came back this morning, supposedly negative. Um, I don't think I believe it. And so what I'm trying to do now is get antibody testing. I'd, I'd really like to know that I had it and I'm over it because then I can do two really cool things. I can donate my blood with antibodies in it and help somebody else. And I can volunteer clinically and, and not have to worry about an N95 mask and let my colleague wear it instead. So I, I'm still sorting things out. Um, I've been sick with characteristic symptoms for two and a half weeks. Um, it, it's you know very consistent with what you're hearing. It goes on and on. You get a little better, you get a little worse. Uh, but 98 to 99% of coronavirus cases around the world appear to be mild. Mostly what we hear about in the news, of course, are the people needing hospital beds. So mine was mild, you know, kind of like the worst days were quite flu-like, the better days were a bad cold and you know, kind of waxed and waned. Uh, my wife has symptoms now like mine, but both of us are very healthy and um, I, I suspect her course will be much like mine. She's progressing through it in a very similar way. Uh, and again, I, you know, I'd like to be able to confirm that we've been through this and have antibodies, so that's, that's still pending. Um, concerning not so much for me, but for what we think we know about the virus in the world, if in fact my test result is a false negative, if it got misplaced for a week, all those kinds of things. So, you know, I think we're still racing to catch up in the U.S., Canada is presumably the same, you know, to be able to do a good job of testing the population. Um, and then we're just riding it out. You know, at some point, I, I, I'm sort of tempted to say that what all of us is, uh, what, what we're all doing every day is a little bit like building sandcastles right in the surf. You know, we're, we're trying to put together constructs and ideas, but every wave is the next news cycle and everything we built yesterday gets washed away. And 
I, I almost feel as if, you know, we, we're, we're just destined to, to ride this out, you know, not all that differently than populations did centuries ago when they were dealing with plague and, and, and smallpox. I mean, we, we think we're very different, we're modern, but this thing is just sort of washing over all of us and uh, we're doing the best we can to minimize the toll. But there feels like there's an element that's just sort of too big, you know, for any one policy to get out in front of. Um, so anyway, personally doing well. Um, we have three adult children uh, sheltering at home with us. Two came home from universities in Boston. One was sent home from a shuttered restaurant in New York City. Uh, the other two are sheltering at their place of residence, and we're all riding it out. Um, we're all in this together, Andrew. I mean, I, you know, I think one of the key messages here is social distance, but solidarity. So we're, we're all riding it out together. So just to be clear on the antibodies, so what you're saying is that once you're exposed to it and have it, then you cannot get it again. Is that it? We think so. Uh, the, the, the global trends suggest that most people get over it and are immune. There are anecdotal reports of people getting it a second time, but they're anecdotal and in the midst of a crisis. Did they ever really get over it in the first place? Was it a false negative test followed by a, a, a true positive test? So much we don't know. In general, with viral exposures like this one, once you recover clinically, you have antibodies to it, you are immune. Now, whether you're immune in perpetuity or for a little while, whether you're immune against just that one specific strain or all strains, all of that is, is to be determined at this point. Um, I imagine the most likely scenario is something a lot like flu, where if there are variants of this virus in circulation, having been exposed this time around will give at least partial immunity. And so, you know, people who've been exposed to flu strains from prior years have partial immunity against the new flu strain, just not complete immunity. It'll likely be something like that. But yes, as best I can tell, you get through a bout of this, you have antibodies, you're immune. And, and some of the evidence we have comes from the fact that in a few desperate cases around the world, they've actually used blood donations from people who had it and got over it to distill down their antibodies and use them as therapy and it's been effective. So you know, that, that tells us that those antibodies are, are highly effective. And, and that, that's a kind of a last ditch treatment effort, but you know, for people who need it, um, it it's, it's on the list of things to try. So again, I, I want to know I've got those antibodies and I'd love to pay them forward to somebody else. Right. And you're, you were saying you practice, you're practicing, so you want to help go out there and actually help people? Well, actually, I haven't been. So, you know, I, I was a clinician for the better part of 30 years. And for the last couple of years, I, I have not been seeing patients. I, you know, I've shifted over entirely to public health activity. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think you'd want me to do uh, delicate surgery on you after a couple of years of not doing medicine. But, you know, I, all the basics are a lot like riding a bicycle, so I can help. And, um, I'd like to go back and do that. So yeah, as soon as we know I'm, I'm fit for it, uh, I'll be volunteering clinical time. I know one of the questions that has come up, and I know Randy, my partner here, she wants to know when it comes to masks, so there's a lot of talk about the N95 masks, and now they're talking about at, you know, at home masks. Are, do, are masks helpful for the general public? And what are the best masks to wear if they're going out shopping or they're inter, you know, doing the necessities of when they are leaving their house? So there's been a major shift in what the public health authorities in this country are saying, and it's really interesting to watch. And to me, Andrea, it's, it's sort of symptomatic uh, of some of the problems with the um, 
with dispensing expert opinion, uh, one of the, the difficulties I have with my field is that some people contend there's only one way to know something. So for example, if we don't have a large scale randomized control trial proving that you know wearing a bandana does any good, then we have to assume it does no good. And I disagree with that. Mm. Um, perfect should not be made the enemy of good. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And science works best when it's on the tracks of sense. So you know, science is the power of a train, but absent tracks, you get a train wreck. So you know, the initial advice was don't bother with a mask. It's not going to help unless it's a certain kind of mask. But what that was based on was, is the mask good enough to actually capture viral particles if they're coming at you and protect you? And the answer for that is you needed a 95 mask. Okay, fine. That's not the point. The point is. If when we talk, when we cough, when we sneeze, when we're out in the world, we put saliva into the air, and we all do, and saliva is a delivery vehicle for viral particles. And if you just cover your mouth and nose with a bandana for crying out loud, 95% of the saliva that would have gone out into the air is captured in the bandana. Well, then the number of viral particles you're putting into the air, if you happen to have this thing, is down by 95%. Absolutely, that's helpful. And, and there have been reports from all around the world that everybody wearing any kind of mask, just anything that will capture saliva, forget about capturing viral particles, is a major con contributor to slowing the spread of the disease. So the idea is not that I'm going to put a bandana over my face and it's going to protect me. Excuse me, got a bit of my uh, workout towel on my tongue there. Um, it's not that it's going to protect me. Uh, I'm going to protect you. And then you're going to protect me. So we're both out there. Either of us may have this. And we're both wearing any kind of mask. So, you know, a simple mask that you can get for home cleaning, uh, a mask you make yourself. And there are a number of videos. All you have to do now is, is Google, you know, make a home respiratory mask, make a home coronavirus mask. And, and you'll see a how-to guide. And some of them involve sewing and many of them don't. Uh, you know, basically just about any bit of cloth and a couple of safety pins and you're good to go. So the idea is, you know, again, we protect one another. And that's very different from healthcare workers needing a mask that will actually filter out viral particles aimed at them. Um, but for those of us who are practicing social distancing anyway and trying to stay six feet apart, a massive reduction in, you know, the, basically the respiratory secretions we put into the air, clearly beneficial. And I think the CDC and uh, other federal authorities are formally adopting the recommendation that everybody should wear masks if you go out. So if you're if you're in a place where there are other people, uh, you should have a mask. They should have a mask. And by the way, we do need to append to that um, some sort of formal system to identify I've had it. I'm over it. I'm immune because you know if in fact I'm in that camp now, I you know I, I'd rather wear the lapel pin than the mask. I don't need to wear a mask to protect you if I'm over it immune because I can't spread it. You know, so and, and, and I don't need you to worry about protecting me either because uh, I have antibodies. So, you know, again, there, there's some things we need to do to identify who maybe doesn't have to wear a mask all the time. But for now, it's a good idea. It's a really good idea. It's simple. Uh, it's not perfect protection. But if we both wear one, I'm protecting you, you're protecting me. Beautiful uh, YouTube video out of the Czech Republic. Uh, that, that tells this story in just a few minutes. So again, Google masks, coronavirus, Czech Republic, Google masks, coronavirus, do it yourself and, and you'll be all set very quickly. But I recommend it.
Well, you know, the, the issue is, you know, where do you put your hands when? Whether it's your hands or it's gloves, if you touch your face, touch a counter, let's say you've got gloves on and, you know, with the gloves on, you touch your face and you touch the counter and somebody else with or without gloves touches the counter and touches their face. Can the virus get from you to them or them to you? Yeah. So, you know, again, gloves are particularly helpful if they're used adeptly by health professionals who know, you know, after basically different gloves, every patient wash in between and, you know, essentially make sure it's a pristine surface that's being exposed at each encounter. If you're going about your business during the day, you know, unless you're changing the gloves routinely throughout the day, it's maybe hard to remember to do. And at what intervals do you do it? And whoops, I think I may have just touched my face time to change the gloves again. You know, I think that's, that's pretty complicated. So I don't see real value in gloves for most people out in the world. I think that really is for health professionals. The, the, the more important issue is to try and be mindful about touching your face. Um, although there too, the mask would help. So for example, you know, let's say you're just out in the world shopping, you touch something and you scratch your nose, but if you scratch your nose, if you happen to have touched something with viral particles on it, and what you wind up scratching is the bandana because, or the mask, because it's over your nose, uh, the likelihood is that that barrier will capture the, the moisture that's holding the virus and you're less likely to get it. Just quickly, uh, Andrew, to back up, you know, because, you know, this is an audience that's, that's not trained in epidemiology or virology. In public health, and, and by the way, you know, the reason for, for me opining the way I do about coronavirus when, as you mentioned at the outset, my focus has been on nutrition and lifestyle I'm board certified in preventive medicine, public health. You know, really my life mission is do everything I possibly can to add years to lives and add life to years. Trained in epidemiology, have co-authored multiple editions of a textbook in epidemiology, have written on clinical epidemiology. So, you know, I, I'm not specifically focused on infectious disease outbreaks or hotspots or virology, but, you know, definitely qualified to opine and, and this is my mission. Um, you know, usually nutrition is where most of the action is. It's the thing that kills most people prematurely in the U.S. and Canada. So most of the time, our attention should be there. It's also the thing that has the greatest potential to influence both human and planetary health. So most of the time, our attention should be there. But in the middle of a pandemic, our attention, you know, whether we want it to be or not, is on the pandemic. So it makes sense to talk about all of these same kinds of efforts to optimize the human condition, but translate them into what's going on now. So uh, what you learn in Epi 101, other than to ask what's the denominator all the time, and, and we can turn back to that in a second, because I think I can say some things that are a bit reassuring for the audience about uh, the pandemic. Um, and I think everybody could use a little bit of that. Um, but, but what you learn about infectious disease is host agent environment. And what that means is for someone to get sick with a pathogen, a, a virus, a bacterium, a parasite, the host needs to be vulnerable. Now, in the case of coronavirus, the host is us. Um, it's anybody who can get it. The agent is the bug, so that's SARS-CoV-2. And then the environment is the thing that brings the, the host and the agent together. And that's really important, and you need all three pieces. So you know, the, the environment would be you know, again, um, we cough, we sneeze, we talk, we put saliva into the atmosphere. That's the delivery vehicle for the particles. Or, you know, moisture gets on the surface, there are viral particles there, we touch it. 
But what's very clear from the entire history of infectious disease and epidemiology is that the likelihood of infection depends not just on any level of exposure, but the dose of exposure. So for instance, you're healthy, you have a strong immune system, you've, you've been you know, getting great advice and great product guidance from Naturally Savvy all these years, so you know, your immune system is better than the average person. You're exposed to one, two, seven viral particles of SARS-CoV-2, you don't get sick because your immune system deals with them before they can set up shop, and you're fine. But you're exposed to 7 million particles, and some of them sneak past your defenses before you can deal with them, right? You think of this in just in military terms. You know, there's an ambush by a few people, and you've got defenses. You, you effectively fend them off. You're attacked by thousands, and, you know, everybody who's watched Game of Thrones, you know, you, numbers matter, right, in those battle scenes. So some of them sneak around your defenses. It's, it's harder to defend yourself. You're more likely to get overrun. Viruses are exactly the same. Your immune system is your army. The virus is the enemy. And if there are a lot of them, they're more likely to get, get a hold um, on, on your turf than if there are few of them. And then we come back to things like wearing a mask and, and these precautions. So we can be exposed and still not get sick if we minimize the level of exposure. And those three things are really part of the equation that will determine whether you get through this with or without getting sick. And then just quickly, because I know we want to talk about other things, but just a little bit of reassurance. So uh, the, the global data continue to suggest that 98 to 99% of all coronavirus infections are mild. Uh, you're not going to need the hospital. Uh, it, it may be unpleasant, you know, like the flu. Uh, in many cases, it appears it may be asymptomatic completely. Uh, you may not even know you have it. But overwhelmingly, uh, the, the infection is mild. Uh, but it's particularly likely to go that route in people who are younger. No great surprise as we get older, obviously, uh, you know, our immune system weakens, we become more vulnerable to everything. And people who are healthy. Um, and so interestingly, it all does come back to lifestyle as medicine and, and these things linking together because it, you know, if you've been taking care of yourself all along, you now have an acute benefit and you know, I'm 57 years old. There's nothing I can do about that. I, it is what it is, but I practice what I preach. I eat optimally. I exercise daily. I, you know, I use lifestyle as medicine. If in fact I've had this and, and I'm over it, um, that's a big part of the reason why. And you know, that, that's why Catherine won't get severely sick with it either. Um, and then the last thing I want to say about this in terms of you know, reassurance, it's really hard. I mean, this is bad. You don't need me to tell you that it's bad. It, it, this, this is you know, arguably the single greatest public health crisis in living memory. Um, so you don't need help knowing it's bad. Uh, we we're sort of watching civilization as we know it shut down, at least temporarily. Uh, but you maybe need me to tell you that it's not as bad as it seems. And so the issue is this, as we're having this conversation, Andrew, and the numbers will change when, when this is, is viewed. But, you know, as of right now, the total global death toll from coronavirus is about 42,000 people. That sounds like a, you know, really horrible number. Um, but seasonal flu in the United States alone this year is estimated to have killed 50,000. Um, there have been, I believe it's 260,000 deaths this year alone, uh, from motor vehicle crashes. Um, there have been that many deaths from suicide. There have been well over 400,000 deaths from malaria. 
uh, and, and on and on it goes. Um, we're not getting any perspective as we focus hour by hour on, oh my God, someone else's hospitalized, someone else has died due to coronavirus on the fact that people die every day. In the United States, population of about 330 million people, 8,000 people die every day of miscellaneous causes. And, you know, most of them are, are older and, and sick. And, you know, so, I mean, some of this is tragic, obviously, premature deaths are, but a lot of it is just the circle of life. People die. Uh, and, and if we didn't do that, the world would be a very crowded place. 8,000 a day. So, you know, there, there have been fewer, uh, I believe, again, the numbers change so fast. I have to, uh, let, me, let me take a quick look so I'm reasonably accurate here. So there have been just over now 4,000 deaths from coronavirus in the United States. And, and if, if all you hear is that, like thousands, my God, it's scary, it's horrifying, it's terrifying. That's, that's half the number of people who die in this country every single day. And some number of the people dying of coronavirus are people who are very much at risk of dying of something else soon anyway, which is the very thing that made them vulnerable to the severe version of coronavirus. They were old, they were sick. Um, and in many cases, they were both. We've all heard bad uh, mortality statistics out of Italy, but they've done some analyses most people haven't seen. 1.2% of the deaths in Italy were in people under age 50, and only 2.1% of the deaths were in people who did not have one or more serious chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes. Most of the deaths were in people who were over 70 and had chronic disease, and a tiny fraction of 1% were in people who are under 50 without prior disease. So it can happen, but you know, healthy young people you know, can occasionally die of the flu too. The, the, you know, none of us gets a guarantee. But as bad as this is, I, I actually think the constant, never-ending 24-7 news coverage of this one cause of ill health and death is distorting it, is amplifying it, is making us forget that you know, before coronavirus, people got sick and died too, and hospital beds were occupied, and people needed ventilators. So it's bad. I actually don't think it is as bad as the constant attention to it makes it look. Um, and you know, if that offers some level of reassurance, good. And you know, the, the last thing I wanna do is talk anybody out of respecting this, do social distancing, shelter in place, follow the rules, wear a mask if you go out, all of that obviously, because, you know, the, the big problem here is, you know, in addition to just the, 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 the adverse toll of all this is if it all happens at once, even if the total numbers don't turn out to be all that staggering, but if, you know, everybody who's vulnerable to severe infection gets it all at once, that will overwhelm the medical system. And we've seen that happen in Italy. It's happening in New York. That's still a very bad thing. And then lastly, because uh, I, I do want to pivot, but you know, the, when I wrote about this in the New York Times and when New York Times columnist Tom Friedman picked up my argument, I was pointing out, and I still stand by this, there really is more than one way for the pandemic to devastate health or take a life. One way is via infection, but the other way is via the fallout of you know, essentially shutting society down completely. Um, putting people in positions of poverty, destitution, desperation, depression, hunger, food insecurity, and all of that, basically, you sum it up and you say social determinants of health. When that falls apart, bad things happen. Uh, things like addiction and suicide and domestic violence, and none of that's good either. Anyway, the, the virus or our response to it ruins a life or takes a life is a bad way. 
any way we defend against those bad outcomes is a good thing. And what I've been suggesting, and I still see the value in this, and I, I, I'm hoping there may yet be a pivot to it, is that if we artfully identify those at high risk of severe infection and those at massively lower risk of severe infection, we actually could have differential policies so that a lot of the workforce can go back to living, develop immunity to this thing while we very carefully protect those who can least afford to get it. And potentially with that approach, we minimize the direct harms of the virus and we minimize the indirect harms of the virus. And so we're doing total harm minimization. That's been my goal from the start. It remains my goal now. That's well said, David. I want to, I'd like to pivot, like you were saying, to the book that you wrote, because now more than ever, you mentioned nutrition and the importance of really eating healthy. And there's your book. I got it on Amazon. It's a beautiful cover, isn't it? It is. It's awesome. Here, Mark and I, you know, we, you know, the, the, um, the, the publisher decides to cover and they, they, you know, they sent us a bunch and, you know, they were sort of all over the map initially, you know, and Mark and I would confer, we'd look at one of them and say, what do you think? Anyway, then, then they, then in, they, out of the blue, like, you know, they were sort of cartoon covers and also, you know, there was one that looked like Monty Python and, you know, they were funky, but, and then they sent us this one and we said, uh, yeah, it's just, it's lovely. That's perfect. And I think it's a good segue into making, you know, talking about diet and nutrition and the importance of staying away from, you know, processed foods or like you say, you know, ultra processed foods in the book. So let's talk, let's go back to the basics for a minute. Why is it important that we really, I know you mentioned it before that, you know, it keeps our immune system strong, but why is it important that we make the right choices right now when it comes to our food to support our immune system? So, so again, in general, um, Food is the number one cause of premature death in the United States and Canada. There, there was an op-ed in the New York Times, August 26th of 2019, which seems like a very long time ago now. <laughs> um, our food is killing too many of us. It was by Darius Mozafarian, the Dean of Nutrition at uh, Tufts University and a colleague, uh, and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture in the United States. And they basically cited the literature um, implicating poor diet, uh, a diet of you know, ultra-processed, glow-in-the-dark frankenfoods uh, with hundreds of thousands of premature deaths in the U.S. The numbers are lower in Canada, but the percent impact is the same uh, via heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, uh, dementia, neurodegenerative disease, and on and on it goes. Bad nutrition contributes to almost every bad thing that happens to us. So, you know, the, the, the general argument about taking diet seriously, which I, I suspect we're preaching to the choir a bit, you know, people who follow Naturally Savvy are very interested in this. But, you know, the, the, the general interest is the single most impactful thing you could do to fortify your health and maximize years in life, life in years is optimize your diet. And it's incredibly simple and straightforward, despite all the pseudo confusion on the topic. Michael Pollan nailed it in seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. If you eat real food, minimally processed, whole food as much as possible, plant predominant. So in other words, if you mostly eat minimally processed, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and if when thirsty, you mostly drink plain water, if you really mostly do that, whatever else you do, you're probably okay. Seriously. I mean, it is that simple. It hides in plain sight. But let's go back to, you know, like day one of uh, medical school, the ankle bones connected to the shin bone. So every part of the human body influences every other part. And the health of your detox systems, 
influences the health of your circulatory system, which in turn influences the health of your detox systems, which in turn influence your hormonal balance. And you add all these things up and they exert a massive, massive influence on the robustness of your immune response. So right now, if we want to talk about immunity because we're in the middle of a pandemic and say, well, you know, never mind heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, all that stuff that used to matter. Just talk to me about coronavirus. Is diet going to make a difference? Hell yeah. Um, you know, is eating an apple today going to save you from getting coronavirus? No. Uh, but is eating well, even if you start today, potentially going to make a difference? Actually, yes, because, you know, we have studies to show that a meal, so, you know, forget about diet over time, but just a meal changes your vascular function. And if you optimize your vascular function, you're actually improving the delivery of crucial nutrients to the bone marrow that's manufacturing the cells that populate your immune system. You are delivering construction materials to make more and better antibodies. You're fortifying the cell membranes that protect every cell in your body. You're striking a better balance between pro and anti-inflammatory responses. You want an immune response. You don't want an excessive immune response because dysfunctional inflammation is kind of like the collateral damage of warfare. You can actually damage your own cells. There's a balance to be struck. Nutrition provides that balance and it can happen today. So you, you actually can make a difference today. You, you, if while you're sheltering in place, you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this time to learn about eating well. I, I know a particular book to recommend, by the way. <laughs> and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna start practicing it. Um, it can make a difference immediately. Now, the greatest difference is the one that accrues over time. So again, you know, the good news here is that naturally savvy folks uh, are savvier than most when it comes to nutrition. I've been making, uh, with, with you, your excellent guidance and Randy's guidance, making better choices than many. Um, and that's gonna serve them well through this crisis. But you know, to the extent that all of us wanna pay it forward, if we've got family members, if we've got friends, if we're gonna share the message, um, absolutely, you, you make, fairly simple, fairly obvious adjustments to your diet. Shift away from highly processed to minimally and unprocessed foods. Shift from animal foods, which tend to contribute more to the dysfunctional inflammation, to plant foods, which are much better at achieving the necessary balance. And you are better prepared uh, to fend off the coronavirus if you're exposed to a small number of viral particles, like we were talking about a bit ago. Um, and to get over the infection and recover if you happen to get this infection, which it looks like many of us will somewhere along the line because it's, it's widespread. Uh, so there, there's the, the benefit of overall health coming into this, and that's built up over time, but there is an immediate benefit of getting diet right too. And so I would say um, the earlier the better to start eating well, but it's never too late. And I love that, you know, in the book, by the way, and I want to, I'd love to have you back on to really go through certain things in the book. And I don't want to take up too much of your time today, but what's so great about the book is that you literally answer every single question that people are thinking about. You literally, I don't think you left one question unanswered. No, that's great. Thank so, <laughs> well, thank you. So, so the backstory for people, so the book is fun and um, you know, I've written a lot of books uh, and, and the one I wrote just before this called the truth about food. Um, personally, I think it's really good and it's sort of my magnum opus, but I can't call it fun. It's 750 pages. It's everything I know. It's how I know. I mean, some of it's fun to read, but I think of it more as a reference, but how to eat is it's really 
it's fun. And it's cheeky too, because of course, Mark Bittman famously wrote How to Cook Everything. So we kind of joked around the book title really should be How to Eat and in parentheses, but not everything. Um, you know, so, but we, we had a good time. We had a conversation. And, and this grew out of two pieces we did for New York Magazine that kind of went viral. So um, we did this, we had this back and forth. What about this? What about that? And, it, and New York Magazine uh, called it the last conversation you'll ever need to have about uh, nutrition and health or something like that. Uh, and, it, and it was one of the most popular articles New York Magazine has ever run. So inevitably, there was a sequel to the last conversation. So it wasn't really the last conversation. We then did another one. Um, and then after we'd done two and they were both extremely popular, you, you know, we, we looked at one another and said, you know, was that everything we had to say? And we agreed, no, um, these were great, but we, we had a book's worth. So we, we went to our publishers and said, hey, we, we got an idea. How about the book version? And everybody agreed. But it, it really, reading this book, uh, Andrea, as you know, you know, it, it is like we're at a coffee table. You know, Mark and I are batting stuff back and forth, and you're just invited into the conversation, which I think is a very different approach than any other book I've seen on the topic of nutrition and health. And we talk about the environment too. I mean, we get into everything we care about, but it, it can be very detailed at times. What about gluten? What about lectin? What about chocolate? What about coffee? What about alcohol? You know, every little thing, but it's this conversational flow. So it really, yeah, you kind of feel like I'm going to pull up one of these and sip my coffee and join the conversation. And it's easy to understand because it's in those, that question and answer format. It's, and I like it because it's kind of like, the little nuggets that you can take, you can absorb. It doesn't overwhelm you in any way. And like you said, it, it's almost like an amalgamation of so many other books on the market kind of put into one. You just don't need the full details of each one, but it kind of like touches the surface on each one. So like you're saying, like the lectin, fruits and veggies, like all the different, you talk about meat, you talk about the environment. What about meat? What about processed meat? Right. Yeah. And, and people who are going to gripe about this would be people who think that a book on diet and health should tell them something completely and radically new. But one of the things we say in the book is, you know, that the places around the world where diet contributes the most to health, you know what the most important news about diet is there? absolutely nothing. There is no news about diet there. So in the world's blue zones, which our friend Dan Buettner writes about, uh, there is no diet news. Everybody eats the way their great-great-grandparents ate. I mean, they, you know, that's the beauty of it. You don't need to change your diet with every news cycle. But people who think like, you know, tell me something I've never heard before, you know, show me the pixie dust. They're going to be disappointed with this book. I would say if you're, you know, if you need pixie dust, go buy a different book. <laughs> Just to be fair, we got none. <laughs> so this is really good. This is the amalgamation. This is kind of putting it all together into one book, and it's not crazy thick. Like it's it's a nice size. Like no, seriously, you did a great job, and I love reading it Thank because, you. and I'm, I'm very familiar with the information. I'm like, oh, this is good. It's like, and you talk about the keto, and you talk about paleo, you talk about coconut oil, you talk like you just talk about everything that I talk about all the time. And I thought this is it's really easy to digest, which no pun intended. Well, yeah, <laughs> really easy to digest information. So I think it's great. And so timely now because of everything that we're going through. And I love that you said, David, too, that it's never too late to start. So even if you haven't followed a good diet up to now, now's a good time to really start changing the way we look at food a little bit differently, looking to support our immune system with those unprocessed foods that can help boost up and support our immunity at this time. Absolutely. You know, it's one of the things we'll sort out you know, when, when the dust of the coronavirus pandemic finally settles is, you know, who did well and, and, and who did badly. And, 
you know, right now we're in the thick of it, but I think inevitably we'll find there will be massive differentials based on, on diet quality and lifestyle practices. Um, but, you know, rather than fall into one of those statistical groups, let's use what we know now about these ineluctable connections between the, the fuel for this amazing machine, the human body, and one of its key functions, uh, a, a robust immune response. Let's use what we already know and say, hey, in all probability, doing everything I can to optimize my diet now, putting all good stuff in to fuel the best response is going to help me. It probably is. And you know, the proof of that will come after the fact, but it's certainly, we know it to be true with other infectious disease. We know it to be true of influenza and we know it to be true overall. People who put good stuff in, take good care of, of this machine, get the benefits of it taking good care of you and, and defending you against the slings and arrows of outrageous epidemiologic misfortune. So, you know, again, it, we can do a lot to defend ourselves um, and, and diet is a huge part of that formula. Well, what a beautiful way to end our interview. And I appreciate you being on the show. And where can people find out about you? Where can they find the book? I got my book on Amazon, but where can they, your website, they could find out more. Yeah, you know, I mean, just, just you know, as little as a few weeks ago, I would have said what's in bookstores everywhere. Um, of course, nobody's going into bookstores at the moment. Uh, so yeah, it's available on, um, on Amazon and all of the online places you might go shopping for a book. Uh, you can learn more about me. I, I run now a private company. I stepped down from Yale last October to run Diet ID, uh, which I think will be of real interest to, to folks at Naturally Savvy. We, we've reinvented dietary assessment, so you can find out everything about your diet in a matter of seconds. Um, and it's for health professionals, and it's not for individuals. It's not in the App Store. But check it out. Go to dietid.com. It's important. And, and we're, we're actually making it available free during the pandemic. Um, and then my website, davidkatzmd.com, which will lead you to all the other things I'm doing, the True Health Initiative, uh, all the things that, that we're trying to do to, to help get us through this pandemic. And your beautiful wife has an incredible website where she has recipes. But, but please, like, please give Catherine's website too, because her recipes are delicious. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the good news, davidkatzmd.com, if you just remember that one, there are links to everything. But yeah, my wife's an amazing cook. Um, and We've been paying forward Cat's Family Recipes all these years via her beautiful website, Quizinicity.com. Everything's freely available there. So like Cuisine City, but with an eye in the middle, Quizinicity. And um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, while you're sheltering in place, you're stuck at home and, you know, you got a little time to read a good book. You got a little time to, you know, find some really good recipes and try those at home. So, <laughs> so perfect. So yeah, by, by all means, check out Quizinicity.com and and see if some of the, the cat's family recipes you know, can both delight and help protect your family. I, I would love that. So would Catherine. I'd love that. Well, thank you so much. Please say hi to Catherine for me. Thank you for joining yeah. me today. And if you got value out of today's interview, please share this with your family and friends and everybody you know. And thank you so much. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to our channel and to our podcast. Have a great day, everybody. David, thank you for being on. Stay well, stay healthy. Everybody stay well, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. All of us know how important it is to fuel your body with good for you ingredients. Well, Bigelow Tea has great news for both avid tea drinkers as well as those who turn to tea when feeling under the weather. Introducing Bigelow Benefits Teas, a line of tea designed to support clean eating and a healthy everyday lifestyle. So whether you want to stay well, sleep better, calm your stomach, or feel refreshed. Bigelow Benefits not only supports your well-being, but also tastes great. 
Be sure to try our latest benefits teas, Lean and Fit, Focus and Stress Relief. Learn more at BigelowTea.com.